Good morning, ZPC. Well, it is good to be here with you on this beautiful day. And, you know, I don't know about you, but this up and down thing with COVID and all that, it's getting exhausting. Amen? So praying for you and for your health and for all your business or whatever else it is, your family, praying for them in the midst of all of this. But we keep moving forward knowing that the Lord continues to be in control. And we are excited as we uh, gather here today, uh, at least I am, I don't want to speak for you, but I am excited about uh, beginning our look at the life of David. And, you know, as uh, Sharon alluded to in her, uh, in her prayer, uh, for many of us, uh, if you were raised in the church, you knew about David uh, early on in life. It's one of those stories that as a kid really stands out. And I think that's the good news. As I've said before, the, the bad news is that oftentimes our understanding of David as a kid never really develops that much beyond that. And so uh, uh, David can kind of become static in our lives. Um, and we think of him however we learn five or six years old. That's just kind of who David is. And so uh, my hope is that over the next few months as we dive into David, that maybe there are some new things that we can uh, experience and come to learn uh, about the life of David. Uh, before I dive into the passage today, let me just uh, give you a, a brief context. Um, you know, King Saul was the very first king. Uh, God wasn't all that excited about having a king, um, but, uh, but the Israelites were. And so uh, eventually God relented and they had King Saul. And there were some good moments and there were some bad moments. But increasingly, the bad moments were getting even worse until finally they reached the point where God had really kind of had all he could. And so it was finally time to be done with Saul as king. And the person who had to do this, the same person who kind of coronated and anointed uh, Saul, was the prophet Samuel. And so we begin today, uh, as we will see, with Samuel, uh, which eventually then leads us to... Don't ruin it for people who don't know how the story goes. First Samuel 15.34 through 16.13. Let's hear what... It tells us today. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely... The, Lord has an, the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we pray that you would immerse us into this story. That you would help us, Lord, in the days and weeks and months ahead to be able to understand more deeply the life of David. What it means to be a man or a woman after your heart. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Though it had been years earlier, Samuel could still remember that day clearly. He had been so full of hope and joy and, honestly, a certain amount of pride for the role that he had played in making this day happen. Truth be told, a prophet doesn't have very many days like this. As a prophet, he was always the killjoy, the one who reluctantly played the goody two shoes when revelry was abounding. He was always that irritating angel on your shoulder, the glimmer of guilt, the parental, what are you doing? And now, finally, at long last, He was going to be the master of ceremonies, and all of Israel was going to be cheering him. It was a remarkable day. Saul stood there being consecrated for the kingship. Samuel could not help but think what an ideal king had been chosen. He stood so tall, towering over his soon-to-be subjects. Certainly, the surrounding nations, those who had so often mocked or worse slaughtered the Israelites, had heard by now how magnificent this new king would be. Surely, they would now think twice before taking any action against Israel. It was a great day to be an Israelite. It was an even greater day to be a prophet. A prophet 
finally, of good news. But today, as Samuel began to wipe away his tears and in some hopes his memories, he could see more clearly the reality that he was facing. The reality that while Saul, yes, had just slaughtered the enemy Amalekites, and while he may have been perceived by surrounding nations, and especially the Israelites, as a top-of-the-heap kind of king, he had yet again angered God by his disobedience. He had not, as the Lord had told him to, killed all of the animals of the Amalekites. And so it was that God had had it. He was revoking Saul's kingship. And so it was that Samuel's short-lived reign as as popular prophet was coming to an end. It is little wonder, then, that Samuel was not easily consoled That it took a word from the Lord to shake him from his grieving. For Samuel had invested his reputation, his whole self on Saul. And now Samuel knew. He might try to ignore the reality for a while, but God was not going to let him stew forever. There was a new king to be coronated. And as God's chief mouthpiece, it would be Samuel's job to do it. But he didn't have to like it. Samuel began to walk toward Bethlehem on that day. He was, no doubt, full of conflictions. I mean, would one of Saul's loyal friends catch wind of what was, doing, what was going on and put an end to Samuel's prophecies, if not an end to Samuel himself? Would the people begin to think that Saul's downfall was a sign that Samuel had lost it, that he was no longer a prophet of the Lord. Would Samuel consecrate another king and yet again have him fail God? And those questions, those fears, those anxieties were only accentuated when he finally reached Bethlehem and the elders greeted him, not with a, hey, it's our good friend Sam. Not even a, hello, Instead, they met him trembling. Do you come peaceably? In that moment, Samuel thought back to when he was a kid. When he was first told, you've been called by God, it had been so exciting. Now he kept wondering whether it would not have been wiser for him to have just acted like he was asleep and had never actually heard that call of God. But he kept obeying. And so after sanctifying Jesse and inviting his family to the sacrifice, he began the search for the next king. And immediately he found him. Immediately he saw how his reputation might be restored. Immediately all was good. As Samuel's eyes read over Eliab, that tall, majestic firstborn son. His hand surely had to begin to reach for the oil, for Eliab looked like a king. Eliab looked, my guess is, a bit like Saul, the essence of royalty. It was what Samuel could have hoped 
This man could be sold to the Israelites. Oh, sure, there would be some reticence from Saul loyalists. There always are, but that wouldn't last long. For replacing Saul would be someone who really wasn't all that different from Saul. The transition would be smooth. Samuel's fortunes were perhaps not nearly as bleak as he had at first imagined. Of course... One could, I suppose, wonder why Samuel would not at least have had some reservation about selecting a Saul lookalike. Surely he had not forgotten the trouble that had come on the last person who looked so kingly. But, well, one can't blame him too much for wanting something familiar. I mean, who of us, who of us has not in situations like this preferred to stay with the familiar the known and the safe when everything around you is falling apart. Before Samuel could think about that too much, before he could seriously consider Eliab, before his finger had reached the oil, there was a voice that pierced the silence. And it was not a simple no. Oh no, there was a rebuke in what the Lord said. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And as the other brothers began to pass by in a dizzying haze, those words of the Lord must have been clamoring in his head. For if Samuel couldn't trust what his eyes revealed in front of him, then what could he trust? Instead, he seemed to now be just questioning everything. The previous way of looking at leaders, everything seemed to be tossed aside. How was he supposed to make sense of the world? The questions, those fears, those anxieties just kept snowballing in his head until until he realized that everyone was looking at him. For by now, he had rejected all of the brothers. Samuel's confusion had now begun to be caught amongst the whole family. They must have wondered, what in the world is going on? Why did Samuel even come here if our family's not a part of some kind of new enterprise? It already appeared to them that Samuel was a bit troubled. Perhaps he'd lost it. Perhaps the Lord had finally left him. They'd heard rumors that Saul or that Samuel might be looking for a new king. Had he forgotten that the one he had previously anointed was still on the throne? And as their confusion began to take hold, as their doubts began to increase, the stony silence was broken. Are all your sons here? It was the only question, really, that Samuel could even ask at this point before he said, well, I guess I got this one wrong. I'll be seeing you. It was the words of Jesse that saved the very last vestige of Samuel's reputation. There remains the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And with an exhale... Samuel responded, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And then they waited. Did they engage in idle chat? Did they speak of the weather, of the war, of the world? 
that they just look at around at each other in an uncomfortable silence. Do you feel it? How uncomfortable is it? Maybe they did all those things. Maybe they did none of those things. We don't know for sure, but there's one thing that we do know, which is that they waited and waited and waited. And then finally, he walked in. Still no name given as of yet because, well, the name of the lastborn is not nearly as important as the name of the firstborn. We all know that. Truthfully, Samuel was a little taken aback. For all this talk about not looking on the outside, he had to admit the youngest son did not appear to be the runt that Samuel had perhaps believed he would be. And so Samuel took the oil He anointed him, David. We finally find out at the very end what his name was. And then he went back to Ramah. That's it. After all of the buildup, all of the fear about being killed, all of the trembling of the elders, all the confusion of how many sons there were or were not, all of the inordinate amount of waiting. It was all a bit anticlimactic. A dab of oil. Samuel goes home. David heads back to the fields. And of story. I wanted to start our look at David in this way. By immersing ourselves inside of Samuel. You see, I I think that one of the great ways that Scripture comes alive, and I think that one of the great ways that we are changed by Scripture is not by doing what we sometimes are guilty of doing, oftentimes perhaps, which is just intellectually thinking about the story, but instead is by somewhat imaginatively trying to immerse ourselves in the story. You, you, if you grew up in the church, you know that's how you learn the stories, right? We, we learn, most of us, if you were in Sunday school at all, you learn the stories not by just kind of reading over them and then just saying, well, reflect upon the lesson. No, no, no. You learn the story by saying, all right, who's going to play David? Oh, I want to play David. Who's going to be the Goliath? Oh, you'll be Goliath. Who wants to be Saul? You want to be Saul? Okay. And then all of a sudden, the story in the pages all of a sudden comes to life as Johnny and, and Susie and Sammy or whomever else. All of a sudden, now they are the part. Maybe they don the costume right and they get to see what it likes they get to feel what it's like they get to smell the mustiness is there anything more musty than a Sunday school costume (laughs) and then they begin to ask questions you know what if you were staring up at Goliath what would you have been feeling 
And all of a sudden, the story kind of comes alive as, as we as kids just, we dive straight in. We don't ask any questions. We're just there. We are the people. And we look around and we think, oh, this is amazing. And then we get old. 20 or 25. And we put those childish things away. And perhaps the older we get, the less likely we are to ever dive into that kind of story. We, we almost become afraid to try to be imaginative or to try to immerse ourselves, afraid that we're going to besmirch or do some kind of ill to Scripture. And so we keep it at a safe distance, and it remains really static, as does most of our spiritual lives, because it's no longer alive, it no longer breathes, it no longer has something new because we've kept a safe distance from it. As I've been thinking about the story of David and how we might think about it, this passage or the stories as we kind of dive in, I want to encourage you. I'm going to give you like a physical, you don't have to do this. I know it's weird, but I want you, perhaps, every time when we come together and you think about this, I want you to picture just this, 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 this shield or this, 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 some kind of cloth in between us and the story. And I want you to, to almost literally just kind of un, un, unzip that thing, right? And, and pull it back. And then I want you to climb inside of it. And if you want to, if you need to, just zip it back down. And then I just want you to look around. And I want you to ask yourselves questions. What would this, what would it be like? What would they have been feeling? What would they have been asking? What would they have been afraid of? What would they have been hoping for? To ask all of those questions, to allow the story all of a sudden to come alive again. You see, here's the thing I think. I'm pretty convinced of this actually. That on the one hand, it is very difficult for us to imagine this as we get older because we just don't do that. But in many ways, we as adults can understand this story much more deeply than we could have as children. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Think about Samuel. Think about the things he's wrestling with. You know what we as adults know? We know what it's like to be disappointed with the choices that we have made in life. You know what we adults understand? We know what it's like to grieve and not know if we are going to be able to move forward. We adults, we know what it's like to try to lead and how lonely and anxiety-inducing that can be. We know what it's like to keep doing the same thing again and again because to try to do something new or different is just too scary. We know as adults what it's like to see things through our own eyes and the difficulty of seeing things through the eyes of God. We know what it's like to wait and to wait and to wait. You see, we get to bring all of our experiences, our grief, our impatience, our questions, our wrong decisions, our good times, we get to bring all of those into the stories, which then helps us to understand in passages like this, to understand Samuel much more deeply than we ever could when we were a child. Those of you who are in your 80s should be able to allow Scripture to come even more alive than it was in your 60s. Those in your 60s even more alive than it was in your 40s. Those in your 40s even more alive than it was in your 20s. Those in your 20s even more alive than it was when you were five or six years old. 
Scripture invites you to bring all of yourself and to jump into the story and to look around and to allow it to fill you and to allow the Spirit of God to say something new to you. We are invited to immerse ourselves into this story. But there's also a a brief warning in, in this. Because what I've noticed in myself and in others is that when we begin to do that at times, especially with this story, we all want to be David. And we may need to realize as we go throughout this story that actually... More often than not, we may not be David. We may be somebody else in this story. In fact, I might suggest that the vast majority of us who are gathered here right now are probably not David. At least not usually. I started remembering that a couple weeks ago when Elia preached on the prodigal son and then Last week, uh, Jason, that last song that he sung kind of has some prodigal son uh, illusions in it. It's a song that, quite frankly, my wife loves, and she's been singing it all week. It's, I can't get it out of my head now. It's kind of annoying. But, but I remember being at seminary, so 20-some years ago now. And there we were gathered around, mostly all Presbyterians. The vast majority of us are going to be pastors we're talking about the prodigal son, you know, it's a story that we all know, we love, it's great. And, and the professor said, you realize that most of you and most of the congregations that you serve, they are not the prodigal son. They are the older brother. The older brother. Yeah. The one who's responsible, who does what he's supposed to do, who does it when he's supposed to do it, where he's supposed to do it, who does it with great pride because somebody in this family has to be responsible, who shows up, who gives, who serves. Yeah, maybe a little bit uh, grouchy at times. Why wouldn't you be with all these bratty little prodigal sons and daughters running around? Probably not as full of grace because, man, when you got it all together, when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you don't need grace. Well, I didn't like that. Everyone wants to be the prodigal son. This is the one who gets to go away, have have his fun. He gets to do whatever he wants to do. He's living the party, and then he comes home, and they throw him another party. Classic prodigal. Nobody celebrates when I do what I'm supposed to do because I always do it. And when he told us that, I was A, annoyed, and B, it made me then begin to question the way that I oftentimes saw these stories in Scripture because I was always the one who I wanted to be, not necessarily the person that I really was. And so I've already been thinking about that, and then just a few weeks ago, it came to my mind again because I was at a gathering where there were a lot of folks, not, not necessarily all ZPCers, people from Zionsville, Carmel, uh, this, this area. And someone remarked almost offhandedly, I can't read, I don't even remember who it was. They may, not, they may not have been from here. Said, you know, 
what strikes me as I look around here was how many tall people there are. And I thought, no. Yeah, there really are a lot of tall people. And then I just started thinking, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good-looking people around here. Exempting myself. Just, I started thinking, huh. And, and, and as I was thinking about this, I then went back to Garrison Keillor, you know, the old, uh, 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 you may not, uh, um, Lake Wobegon, the fictional town that he came up with. You remember the line, that's the news from Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. <laughs> Downloading it even now as we speak. It's a weird spelling of Keillor, but you'll find it. If someone was going to come to our area to begin to cast the role for this particular passage, if they were typecasting, they would much more than likely be looking not for the character of David, they would be looking for Eliab. Okay, we're looking for someone who's either tall, either real, or metaphorically. As you know, in this day and age, the firstborn, right, who may have and also be tall, not always, but certainly the firstborn, they were the ones with all the privileges, ones with all the power, right? So if you were going to come to a place to cast in this area, who do we want to be Eliab and who do we want to be David? You would have found David somewhere else. Okay, we need Eliab. That's great. We need people who are successful, people who know how to get things done, people who are influential, people who do all of these things. We need all these kind of type A or whatever it might be. You, we are the people, by and large, not every one of us, but most of us, we are, tend to be the ones who have say, the ones who have power, the ones who have wealth, the ones who have influence. We tend to be Eliab, not the Davids who tend to be looked past, the ones who are forgotten as if they don't even remember they still have them. The ones without power, the ones back in the margins, just the ones who have been forgotten. I know, I already hear some of you saying, well, you don't understand me. I have some insecurities. I, don't, I get that. All of us have some of those. I realize that my point is just this. Our natural proclivity will probably be to want to be David. But for the vast majority of us, our actual natural proclivity is that we are Eliab. Which means that we need to go into the story that we are immersing ourselves into with that lens and asking those kinds of questions. That doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you irredeemable. There's no shame in that. But it does mean that more often than not, the lens through which we see things will be through the powerful and the firstborn, not through the powerless and the lastborn. The good news is that that means that we get to be successful in this world. We get to be powerful, we get to be influential, we get to get things done. The bad news is this, please hear me. We oftentimes are so good at it that we don't even need God anymore. I mean, we're so good at it that we can do some pretty remarkable things for God and we, we'll say a quick prayer before we start, but then we do the work. See, here's the thing about David. Let's be very clear. He was not a phenomenal father. He was not an honorable husband in many ways. He was not a paragon of peace. But the thing about David, as Eugene Peterson points out, is this. He dealt 
with God. See, when you begin to look at 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the stories there, as you begin to read the Psalms, what becomes abundantly clear is that David was always talking to God. David was always trying to listen to God. He didn't do it flawlessly, but there was always this engagement. There was always this relationship. He always knew or had a sense or was not far from the reality that he was utterly dependent upon God. And so it is important for us to realize that we may start in two different places here from where David, as the last born, someone said, well, I thought he was this great hero. Yeah, but I don't think we understand the difference between being a firstborn in that day and age and being a lastborn. It is if you have no rights, no power, no influence, nothing. And so we need to begin the story by realizing it may be hard for us. We have to work understanding how much we need to depend on God. Of course, there's great hope. What we also need to understand is that it isn't as if God said, well, you know what? If you look king-like, you got no shot in this world of following me or making a difference for the kingdom. No, I mean, again, I think Samuel was almost surprised. The narrator certainly, for some reason, wants to point out that this David, well, you know what? He's not, it's not like he was an ugly duckling. I mean, he was handsome. He was ruddy, beautiful eyes. But the question that I think that we all have to ask as we begin to go through this series is this. What does it mean? How, if you have an Eliab body, and you know what I mean by that. It's not just about the tall folks. It's about the shorter folks as well. If you have an Eliab body, what does it mean to cultivate a Davidic heart? My hope is that as we kind of continue in the series, we will begin to see that. But let me just begin with a couple of things now to close. First, we immerse ourselves, as I've already said, in the story. Immerse yourself in the story. Ask yourselves those questions. What would this have felt like? What would this have looked like? What would this have sounded like? What would this have smelled like? What would it have been? Ask yourselves the question, who am I? And when you think you're David, you might be Goliath. But the more that you immerse yourself in the story, the more likely it is that you will begin to see the world around you through that lens. Secondly, what we as a church and what we as individuals must always be doing is immersing ourselves in Davidic communities. What does that mean? That means immersing ourselves in communities that are powerless. Immersing ourselves in communities that do not have much influence. In communities that are oftentimes overlooked. So that's why we do things like the food pantry. That's why we have this developing uh, relationship with those on the northwest side of Indianapolis. Why? Because we believe that we need to be influenced by people who are more Davidic than what we may naturally be. We need to be surrounded by people because when you're surrounded by people who have no power, when you're surrounded by people who are oftentimes overlooked, and yet you see the way that God is working in the midst of them and doing remarkable things, it is this clear reminder, oh yeah, we need God desperately. 
So we immerse ourselves in the story. We immerse ourselves into Davidic communities that surround us. And we continue to engage in the spiritual practice that I think is so important, that spiritual practice of slowing down and waiting. Did you hear it in the story? They were waiting and they were waiting, but that's not even really the greatest time of wait. You know what the greatest time of wait is? It is this. He is anointed, David is, and it is about a dozen years before he actually becomes king. Twelve years or so, he waits. He shepherds. He plays the harp. He makes friends like Jonathan and some marauders out in the wilderness. He flees for his life. He hides in caves. For 12 years, David waits. And in the midst of that waiting, his relationship with God grows. In the midst of that waiting, he complains and he celebrates He grumbles and he worships, but he keeps dealing with God. You know what Eliab's need? Eliab's need patience. You want to know why? Because Eliab's like to get stuff done. We want to get stuff done. I was met with the next gen team. They wanted to talk about my leadership. This was great. Not like any bad way. It was fine. It was good. Don't get concerned. And maybe you should have been. I was a little concerned, but it was fine. And but it was kind of talking through people like me, right? We have these, uh, this Enneagram, this eight, and that's, you know, this thing. And so, but what it said, well, I really liked about it was this. It was like, you know, people like you, one of their great pet, pet peeves are people who complain and don't do anything about it. It's so true, am I right? How annoying is that? Right, because if there's something to be done, you just do it. You just do it. You just do it. You don't wait. Take care of it. And when you keep doing that again and again, what you begin to realize is that you begin to think you don't actually need to wait. You don't need anyone's input, certainly not God's, because you know what to do. So we cultivate a sense of waiting. We cultivate a sense of, uh, of the Sabbath to remember, wait, I'm not just about the work I'm doing. There's somebody else. Who is it? That's right. It's God. So as we enter into this story, the story of David, my hope and my prayer is that you will do it. Be a kid again. Jump all the way into the story. Don't be a kid in the way that you think I must be David. And patiently ask, God, what do you have to teach me? And how in the midst of all of this, not because I am flawless, But in the midst, just as he did with David, of his imperfections, his victories, his mistakes, his flaws, his glories, God used and shaped his heart for God's kingdom and for God's kingdom alone. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these stories, like the story of David and the way in which it immerses us into a world that is both foreign to us, and yet the, di- the deeper we dig, the more we see it is a story that is about us. And so help to open up our eyes, our ears, our minds, our hearts to what you would have to teach us, shape us, that we might, Lord, have a heart that is more like David's. And in so doing, Might our faith in you grow, and may our community and our world be changed.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.